Father, we, um, we lift up VBS this week. Lord, we are so grateful for the privilege, the freedom, the resources to uh, do such a, a fun and exciting program for our children. Lord, I pray for this week. I, I already know that those that are raised in Christian family, they're all going to have a blast. I know that they're going to learn things, and, and um, they'll be excited about that. But, Lord, there will be a lot of kids here who don't know you. And I pray that um, through the music and the activities and the classes and the fun and the laughter that they would capture a glimpse, not only of you, a glimpse of how much we love you and how much we believe in you. Our faith is real. So I pray this week, Lord, that you would um, use this week in their lives. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, this is the last series, the last sermon in the series, Trouble Brewing. And uh, we were looking at passages of Scripture where you have one thing is apparently happening and then something else emerges uh, in the middle of it, typically captured by the word meanwhile or one of its cognates, you know, then this happened, therefore. So meanwhile, uh, we just picked a few. There's a whole bunch of them. When you see these, pas- these passages where this is happening, meanwhile this is happening, that's a gold nugget. That's a time to stop and pay attention because God's revealing something. Uh, we said it. We, we took it from the Far Side comics where you have the two, two situations side by side that is going to erupt in some kind of trouble. And what we said is God is brewing, yes, pun intended, a solution below the surface. And really what he's doing is he's bringing the kingdom into our world in a way that we can understand it. And it's a surprise when you see the word meanwhile. It's a surprise what's going to happen. Today we're going to wrestle with the question of what happens when we face increasing opposition uh, and the role of the Holy Spirit. We're going to take a look at Stephen and Saul, who became Paul, in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen and Saul. As By way of introduction, as we, uh, to help us get into the story, this is uh, Pentecost Sunday. Today is. Now, we do a great job as churches of celebrating Easter. Uh, very, most of you don't know much about Pentecost Sunday, is my guest. So we're going to talk about it because it's very important in scriptures, and it's actually the background to Acts 6 and 7. One of God's chosen methods in the ancient world of revealing himself and his way of relating to us, including salvation and our need for salvation, was through the harvest season in the Middle East. The, harv- the Feast of Harvest, or Weeks as it came to be known, came 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Firstfruits was, sell- uh, was connected to Passover, and the Feast of Harvest, or Weeks, was connected to um, Pentecost. They both celebrated the beginning of different seasons. The Feast of Firstfruits, Passover, celebrated the beginning of the barley season, and the Feast of Harvest, or Weeks, or Pente- Pentecost, celebrated the beginning of the uh, wheat harvest. They were two festivals. There were three required, but they were two of the three <clears throat> where all the men were required to gather from around the world to celebrate. And um, they came together at Jerusalem at the temple and, and celebrated a festival that lasted typically a week long. Just, it was joyful, it was fun, it was playful. And it was remembering um, God's provision. You know, we don't live in an agrarian society, most of us. We go down to the grocery store and buy our food. But if you live back then, 
if the harvest was plentiful, you had a lot to be thankful for because then you had food. So this, God used these seasons to reveal his nature and how he works with humanity. He provided for the needs through the harvest, for example. Uh, the Jewish people later connected Pentecost Sunday, what we're, what we're celebrating today. They connected this feast with the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Um, after they left Egypt, God gave them the Ten Commandments and then the law. You see, when they received the law, they were overjoyed. They, uh, the joy was unspeakable that they would find a God who was real, who would tell them his name. All the gods of the ancient world, well, we now know why they didn't exist, but all the gods of the ancient world would never tell them their names. They had to discover them. They would never tell them what the will, their will was. So they lived in constant, uh, with a big question mark constantly on what God wants. So we found, we found all kinds of divination manuals and practices from the ancient world all around the different religions. They might, for example, take an organ like a heart and chop it in half, and depending on how it fell open, they could discern the God's will by looking at that. That still is true in much of the world today. Some of you have heard me tell the story in uh, Madurai, India, at the great Hindu temple there. They have these two very large stone elephants, and people line up, buy these little pallets of butter about an inch, inch and a half, and they throw it at the elephant, and if it sticks then they know that uh, they have a year where the gods are not going to be angry with them. And if it doesn't stick, then the gods are going to be angry with them. They're going to have to pay a tremendous price this year. How would you, if the gods never spoke, how would you discern their will? How would you possibly find out? So out of nowhere, our God spoke. He said, let me tell you about the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are critical because they tell you how to live together within culture. And so they were overjoyed when they got the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law because they didn't have to guess anymore. God was there. And not only that, he told them his name. He wanted his name to be known among them. So this day was celebrated, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Now in the Greek Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, and the Greek New Testament, this was called Pentecost, 50 days, celebrating the 50 days. So, in short, Pentecost in the time of the apostles, in the time of the apostles, a great and grand harvest celebration. The streets of Jerusalem were clogged with thousands of pilgrims who had come from every point of the compass to celebrate the goodness of God and the bringing in of the wheat festival. He had once again taken care of them, and they could eat. And this was the festival in which God chose to send His Spirit. Acts chapter two. Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. So when we as in the church think of Pentecost, we think of the coming of the Spirit. But it has much deeper roots in our heritage than simply the coming of the Spirit. So we can now make the connection between all these critical pieces. The harvest represented God's provision. So we celebrated the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, uh, Passover and Pentecost. Uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law by which we are to be nourished and excited about it, you should think very positively about the law. Every New Testament author, I love it when I'm in the classroom, I ask people, what do, students, what do you think of the, the law? What adjectives come to mind? And they're always negative. 
It's, it's inflexible, it's binding, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Every author of the Bible, when they talk about it, they said it's perfect, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's wonderful. Teach me thy law, O Lord, um, the psalmist says, so that I can know your ways. So we should rejoice in the law because it was God's revealing of himself to his people at a point in time. Well, now we have the additional connection of the giving of the Spirit who would write that law on our hearts. That's the new covenant. He would send his spirit and write the law on our hearts. As Christians, we don't need laws. Do we need a law that tells us not to murder? We shouldn't. We have the Holy Spirit. No, we don't need that. Do we need a law related to integrity in business? We shouldn't need that. We should be the front runners on integrity. And if you struggle with integrity in your business, come talk to us. That's a problem. We don't need that because the law is written on us. True nourishment. And that's what Pentecost Sunday is really all about. When God sent his spirit, incredible things happened. Okay, so the story of Stephen in Acts 6 came approximately one year after Pentecost in which the spirit came. The book of Acts, we often call it the Acts of the Apostles. We really should name it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. If you've never read Acts, uh, it's about the story of the spirit moving to create the church and move in the world, and take this gospel, this wonderful good news about a God who loves this creation, out. That's what it is. So it's really the work of the Spirit every step of the way. And the Spirit is emphasized all throughout this chapter, which we're about to read. So let's start with the uh, introduction and learn just a little bit about Stephen in Acts chapter 6. That's where I'll be, Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, those are Jews who lived outside of the lands of Palestine. They're Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews. Those are the Jews that live locally. Now, remember, this is Pentecost. Everybody's together. Well, this is a year later, but we're still at about that same festival time. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the Hebraic Jews, their widows, were receiving food, but they lived locally. And the, tra- the foreigners that were coming inside, the, uh, they weren't getting their food. So they're, they're complaining about that. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them, and then the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. It grew very quickly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So this is the introduction to the whole story of Stephen. So right off the bat, to resolve conflict, seven men, seven Greek men are chosen. They're all Greek names, one of who is Stephen. They were to be men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, how would they know that? How would you decide? If we went, went to you and said, pick Pick a handful of people from our church who are full of the Holy Spirit. How would you go about making that decision? Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. How would you decide 
Who in our congregation is full of the Spirit? Hmm. We'll come back to that. But as a result of them choosing these men, the number of disciples rose rapidly. You can always see God's movement in times like this. So Stephen then becomes the focus. So we start out with seven, and then we narrow it down to one. Stephen becomes the focus of what happens next in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace, so it's repeated, and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So he's described as a man full of God's grace and power, and that he performed great deeds for the kingdom. Now, it's, it's very often, uh, often is not the right word, it's easy, it's very easy in today's world to assume that you could tell a person full of the Holy Spirit by the way they perform great deeds and wonders and signs. And I'm going to argue that that is absolutely not the case. When you, uh, when you read the literature of the first century world, uh, very few Christians walked around doing these kinds of things. It wasn't the norm. It simply wasn't. Paul goes on a little bit later to explain that these, these deeds, these wonders, that we call them signs, they're signposts pointing to something new. Imagine somebody comes into our church and they get up here to talk and they say, you no longer have to believe in Jesus. What would we do? We'd run them out of town, wouldn't we? Well, what do you think happened to the Jewish people when somebody came along and says, you no longer have to offer sacrifices? That was their entire life. It's all they'd ever known. The law commands it. You don't have to obey the law. The law's been fulfilled. Author of Hebrews says it's now obsolete. It's no longer even in force. How would you know to believe this person? Paul says that's why certain people were given the ability to perform these incredible feats is because they're preaching something that the people had not heard before. It's very rare, even in the Old Testament context, most people did not walk around doing what Stephen did. In fact, even here, seven were chosen, but only one is told that great wonders were performed. Only one, and that was Stephen. So I'm going to argue that that's not the way you can tell that a person's full of the Holy Spirit. If that happens, you can be assured they're full of the Holy Spirit. But if it doesn't happen, that does not mean they're not full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul, many, a few years later, after reflecting on this, wrote a passage which is familiar to all of you in Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Very famous verse. Walk by the Spirit. Live out, live, let the Spirit live out in your life. Be full of the Spirit. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. These are in conflict with each other, so that you will do whatever you want. You see, when you turn to Christ, you now have two natures. You have a redeemed nature, and you have a sin nature, and they're at war with one another. You have the Spirit inside, and you have the flesh inside. And so, that's a good thing. When you feel that tension, and you feel that conflict, and you feel your conscience being provoked, that's the time to stop and praise God. Because... You know the Spirit's active and alive. But then he goes on and talks about the uh, acts of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. But then he goes on in verse 22 and talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the evidence of being full of the Spirit right here. Here it is. So, when I look at elders 
each of the elders has kind of their own way of helping el- this, to make the decision as elders are coming on board. One of the questions I ask all incoming elders that are in the vetting process, and by the way, we're going to be opening up the uh, nomination process in September. We'll announce that at the, at the congregational meeting in August. Every year we open it up. So you guys give us names of people that you think would make good elders, and we start spending time with them. One of the questions I ask them is, how's your faith been tested? What does that look like? I got asked that question just this week from somebody. How was your faith tested? It's a great question. I said, well, it started when I was 25, the first real time I remember was my first wife died. Holding her hands when her heart stopped. That's a moment I hope and I pray none of you ever go through. I cried, cried my eyes out. But at the same time that I cried, down deep inside, I chuckled and I said, huh. The Lord just took away the most important person to me in the world and I still believe. My faith was tested. I've been laid off from Christian organizations along the way. That's a testing of the faith. A year and a half ago, I stood up here before you and announced that I had been diagnosed with bladder cancer. That's a testing of the faith. If you've not been told you have cancer, and I hope again, none of you go through it. Uh, I stayed up all night that night, all night just reflecting on what does that mean. And, and, and my conclusion was the same. I love the Lord. I do. And if the Lord wants to take me home, I'm ready to go. Anytime. But as Paul said, it's better for me to remain with you and my children and grandchildren and Nancy, my wife. It's better to remain here. So by God's grace, I'm cancer-free right now. And uh, those are testing periods of your faith. If you've not been through that, how do you know your faith is real? So that's a question I ask. And if you've not met any of our elders, I would encourage you to sit down and have coffee with them. Grab one of them and say, how was your faith tested? Ask them the question. Some of them will shed tears as they tell you the stories. They've all been through it. But that's not even the most important question. The most important question, because this relates to the Holy Spirit, is what was the outcome of the test? You have a choice, you see. You can harden your heart and become angry. Or you can soften your heart and begin to demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness toward others, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The testing of your faith is going to put you in the position of having to decide how you're going to respond. And a person full of the Holy Spirit responds to move in this direction right here. So you actually are very qualified to pick out people who are full of the Holy Spirit. You look for people that show love, joy, peace, patience. Does that make sense to you? That's what it means to be full of the Spirit. Okay. But as is often the case, we're back to the story now of Stephen. This leads to opposition. Acts 6-9. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedman, as it was called, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. So remember, these people had come to town, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave them as he spoke. So they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. Jesus taught that whenever we live out our faith, opposition should be expected. 
It should be. It could be as simple and benign as a person saying, I don't know if I agree with that. I've had that many times. It could be harsher than that, but we should expect opposition when we live out our faith and when we tell others the truth about Jesus, one true God. This will always be the case. And what Stephen teaches us, the story is that our wisdom comes from the Spirit. But we shouldn't be surprised at that because Jesus said, one of his last things he said, don't be alarmed, don't be worried when they drag you before the courts. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You can have confidence when you're talking to someone about your faith that you will have the words to say. And sometimes those words are as simple as, wow, what a great question. I don't have a clue. I'm going to have to think about that. Authenticity is far more important than knowledge when it comes to sharing your faith. Authenticity. One of the struggles that Mark and I have is that the more we teach you and educate you, the more you become convinced that you have to be like us. You don't have to be like us. Okay? We've given our lives to figuring out this book. You don't have to do that. Some of you are plumbers. Some of you are electricians. Some of you are project managers. Some of you are bankers. Okay? Some of you have your own business. You be who you are. Authenticity is far more significant. And sometimes the best answer you can give to a person that backs you in the corner is to say, wow, what a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I love those questions. I just love them when I can't answer them because it makes me more real to people. And so um, that's what the Holy Spirit does. So what was the result? They had to resort to lying and manipulation, verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, all those who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, this is the leadership of the Jewish nation, they looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest uh, asked Stephen, are these charges true? Stephen now has a chance to present his case. His speech is the longest speech in Acts, and no, we're not going to read it. I'll leave that to you to read. It's the whole chapter. Most of the speech is a summary review of Israel's history. He goes through and he reminds them of all that had happened. It's one of the densest concentrations of Old Testament references and allusions in the Bible. At least 15 Old Testament books are referred to in Stephen's speech. He knew his Old Testament. His main point, his conclusion, is that the death of Jesus by the Jewish leaders corresponds to the pattern of rejecting God and his messengers that's characterized all of Israel's history. Just as the fathers killed uh, God's messengers, the Jewish leaders killed Jesus. And you're not going to win friends with that argument. It's just not going to happen. When Jesus said that, it cost him his life. It cost Stephen his life as well. But he also emphasizes something a little more subtle underneath that. He emphasizes that Jesus' significance can only be understood as part of God's uh, more comprehensive plan and his promises to Abraham. This is the gospel. This is the good news right here. 
Paul tells us in Galatians 3, God preached the good news, the gospel, to Abraham ahead of time that in him all the nations would be blessed. This is the true good news, that God loves all of this creation, all of it, and is doing everything he can short of violating your free will to get you to come to him. Is that good news? That's good news, isn't it? And that is underneath the whole message of the gospel. So then the author of Acts then contrasts Stephen and the Jewish leaders. Stephen is characterized as full of grace and power. Uh, The Jewish leaders are characterized very differently in verse 54. In fact, I'm going to start in verse 52. He's at the end of his speech. Was there ever a prophet your holy ancestors? I mean, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you, you, you have betrayed him. You have murdered him. Who, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. They got a chance. Here's their choice right here. Their faith has just been challenged. How are they going to respond? Love, joy, peace, patience, hostility, anger. Here's what happened. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices. I can't quite do that today. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As he fell on his knees, as he's dying, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. It's pretty amazing the things that we see in here. For instance, we see love. Do not hold this sin against them. We see patience. I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing there. Lord, take care of me. Receive my spirit. We see patience. We see gentleness. He confronts them, but he does it in a way that gives them a choice. All the fruit of the Spirit we're going to see here in this opposition. That is a man full of the Spirit. So you got this contrast between Stephen and the Jewish leaders. And then in verse 58... Meanwhile, there it is, our little gold nugget. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul, who later became Paul. Let me say just a word about Saul because it sets up the contrast to help us draw conclusions. Um, Saul would go on, we're not going to read it all, uh, to further exemplify the hostility against Jesus and the Christians. He took the persecution we see here to a whole new level. He's a murderer. Dragged the Christians out in the streets. Murdered them, dragged them off the prison. He didn't care as long as he got rid of them. He was an avid hater of Christians. He despised them. He becomes the most prominent enemy of the church. So much so that in the very next chapter, when he comes to know Christ... Jesus has to go find somebody and tell them, go lay your hands on Saul 
And what does he say? Uh, 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 Lord, I, I think you made a mistake. I don't think you know who Saul is. He's got a letter of marquee from the Sanhedrin to kill me. I don't want to do that. And Jesus said, yeah, I know, but he's not going to kill you. He has come to faith, but he has to suffer so that he'll know not only what he's done, but what I have in store for him. This guy was despised and hated. And he then finds Christ. And if you haven't read chapter 9, it's worth reading. Uh, it's a story. Rather than, become, rather than being a murderer, he becomes a witness for Christ that can explain salvation from this one true God. He stops murdering people. Rather than being an avid hater of Christians, he becomes an avid defender of Christians. He will go to jail on their behalf. He even goes so far as to say in for, uh, Romans 10, if it were possible, I would give up my salvation for my fellow Jewish people. That's sacrifice. Rather than being the most prominent enemy of the church, he becomes the greatest theologian of the early church. Thirteen of our books are written by him, and most of our doctrinal statements come out of his works. Just gives you a glimpse. Meanwhile, things are not always as they seem. The person that may hate your guts may turn out to be one of the greatest people in your life. You can't tell. Okay, what do we learn from this? First of all, Christian ministry is comprehensive. I mean, look at all that Stephen did. He's helping the widows who are being overlooked. He's accomplishing great things for the kingdom. He's standing up with courage against opposition. He's trusting the Spirit to give him wisdom. You see, his his ministry resembles the ministry of Jesus and later the apostles. It's very popular in our world today to specialize in ministry. I'm a missionary. I don't do, you know, or I, I, I serve at the food bank. I don't do evangelism. Okay? It's very common to specialize, and I would caution us to be very careful not to limit our ministries. Um, we are to love people because we're commanded to. Another thing we learn is that Christian ministry is based on grace, power, and wisdom. When we demonstrate grace, this is an evidence that the Spirit is present. Paul goes so far as to say, you cannot even say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. It is impossible. So yes, when you see somebody doing great signs, you can be assured that the Spirit's present. But when you see people showing love toward others, genuine love, you know the Spirit's present. That person is full of the Spirit and is operating under the power of the Spirit. We cannot demonstrate true grace or even say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit. Next thing we learned is that Christian ministry should be characterized by forgiveness and love. Stephen's speech demonstrated Israel's need for salvation. The early church never gave up on their Jewish friends. You see, Christians didn't start out to become Christians. That was a derogatory term given to them in Antioch. They were Jewish people. They went to the synagogue every week with their Jewish friends and talked to them about Jesus, the Messiah. They never wanted to start a new movement. They were kicked out by the Jewish people, and that's how Christianity was born. And so it should be with us today. Don't ever give up on your friends. Don't ever give up on your enemies either. Show patience, love, Joy, peace, patience, right? That's what it means to be empowered by the Spirit. 
Christian ministry repeatedly faces opposition, and we should expect it. Sometimes there's danger. Not always, but there is always opposition. That's why it's called faith. We should expect it. Sharing the good news with others requires persistence, patience, courage, if you will. By the way, let me just say a word here. We use this language all the time. If I could change one thing in our church, it would be to eradicate the word volunteers. Even in our bulletin, we say food bank volunteers needed. Uh, You're not a volunteer. Don't even think that way. You're a slave. Servant and slave is the same word. You're a slave to Jesus. Some of you need to serve at the food bank. Some of you need to do that because God made you that way. And the Spirit's convicting you or calling you right now. I don't know who that is. But we need help. This is a fantastic ministry. I don't know how many thousands of meals we gave out last year, but poor people come. And we're always looking for somebody. There's just a few people that go over there. Wake up. We need your help and your servants, your slaves of Jesus. Don't be fooled by the language of being a volunteer. You're not a volunteer. You want to be a volunteer? Sit on the sidelines. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. We need your help. Finally, Christian ministry, in order to be authentic, should be willing to serve without complaint. In order to be an authentic witness of Jesus, our ministry should be active in proclaiming Christ. We should be unfazed by opposition. That doesn't mean we don't care. Of course we care. Nobody likes opposition. I don't like it. But we should be unfazed by it. We should be unwilling to compromise on our convictions. We should be willing to die for our faith. We should be accepting and loving of those who do not yet know Christ, even our most vile enemy. Love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest of them. This is what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. I hope that you have enjoyed the Trouble Brewing series Whenever you look around you in the Bible and you see the word meanwhile, pause. There's a gold nugget just waiting right there for you to discover as God reveals his kingdom in a different way than you would anticipate. Father, thank you for these stories. Thank you for these stories of people that are much like us. They're trying to figure out life. And trying to figure out how to, how to live out our faith in our own world, which has its own share of conflict, tension, and opposition, and values that don't agree with us. And Lord, we're trying to figure out what it means to be bold and courageous. And the honest truth is, we don't know how, and we're not very good at it. Help us to be better. Help us to be better. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.